0: Welcome to the Preservation Technology Podcast, the show that brings you the people and projects that are advancing the future of America's heritage. I'm Kevin Ammons with the National Park Service's National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Today we join NCPTT's Jeff Gewin as he speaks with Andy DeGrucci of LimeWorks US. Andy will talk about the role of lime mortar and built heritage and why this material is still important today.
1: Tell me about a few of the structures that you've worked on.
0: Oh, we've uh, worked here in uh, Pennsylvania with my other company, DeGrucci Masonry Restoration, for the last 27 years restoring historic brick and stone buildings. Some of those have included work at uh, Hope Lodge, uh, Daniel Boone's Homestead, uh, William Penn's uh, Homestead, um, the James Hoban, the architect of the White House's Memorial in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Washington, D.C., a myriad of uh, historic Victorian homes, farmhouses in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where I live, and um, all sorts of accoutrements, uh, smokehouses and summer kitchens and basements, some not so glorious uh, buildings, but just a lot of hard work in in the maintenance using appropriate materials to fix those vintage structures.
1: So do you primarily work in the Pennsylvania area, the Northeast, or do you uh, travel to other parts of the country as well?
0: Well, we've concentrated our work within about an hour and a half driving radius of where I live and where my shop is in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we've done work as far as Florida and consulting work on the use of our materials Well, as far as Puerto Rico and Maine out to Oregon, all
1: over. And to Nashville, I know, because I, that's where I, I met you originally at the NCPDT uh, Nationwide Cemetery Summit. Are cemeteries something that you work on frequently?
0: We don't do a lot of cemetery work uh, ourselves, although I did mention we we restored the, uh, the, the architect of the White House, is James Hoban, and his memorial is in Mount Olivet Cemetery. So that's one case, and, and there's, uh, dotted throughout our history, there's been some work to, uh, to statuary and memorials, but really uh, why I was at the Nashville program and my connection with cemeteries is that we actually went to Arlington to uh, Nashville by the prompting of a professor at, at Columbia and that particular conservator I just mentioned was working in Arlington. Um, because they saw our laboratory and they saw all of what we're doing and said, you know, you are like the best kept secret. You really uh, need to step up to the plate and tell the world that you're here. And that's why we're even doing the radio interview now, trying to get the word out that we have some great resources.
1: Taking that a step further, there's just there's a lot of confusion around the terminology related to lime mortars and specifications. I wonder if you could break some of that down for me, Uh, the different types of lime and also talking about what is the difference between um, historically accurate lime as compared to the improved or modern types.
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's a little bit of a peeve with me because, you know, really, Lime is lime is lime. It has pinned the same raw material uh, from the beginning of time until now. Nothing has changed. But as you know, uh, a lot of smoke and mirrors and confusion puts uh, the end user, uh, puts the building owner, uh, puts architects, engineers, uh, masons uh, in a state of confusion. And really, it is a very, very simple uh, thing to understand it once you do understand it and that is lime has always fallen into two categories it's always been pure high calcium 98% pure and lime when I say lime I do mean um, the, sh- the shells and bones of marine life that have built up over millions of years without any impurities in it if, if it was 98% pure just the, that comprising compo- compo- of that then uh, that is called high-calcium lime. And then it falls into the second category, which is impure lime. Now, we designate that into two uh, breakdown of two uh, areas. One would be dolomitic, which would have a certain percentage of magnesium, and then a magnesium lime, which has a larger percentage of magnesium. But they always fall into two categories, either pure lime or not pure lime. Now, the thing is, when we look at ancient structures throughout the world, a lot of material scientists will study them and say, not, let's not look at what is broken about this building. Let's look at what's working so well that it's still here after 500 years. And they'll find common denominators. And with the mortar, they find that the, the basic rule in masonry is you never can fight water and win. Water will always win in the end. So the, the mortars in these ancient buildings had a lime and sand uh, uh, composition that would help to process moisture out to the atmosphere again. It would not trap moisture. Had it trapped moisture or reacted with uh, sulfates and, and other uh, uh, negative reactions, then the, uh, the, the demise of the structure would have been accelerated and it would be here 500 years later. But they found that when you use a lime that is a catalyst to processing water back to the atmosphere, now you have a symbiotic relationship with nature and with water. Therefore, you are now not in conflict with nature, but you're going to survive because you've found a way to get along. And uh, the way that it it does get along is that um, when the limestone, uh, which could be a block of of this uh, sediment that I mentioned, uh, is burned, it's the one stone that when you... When you cook it for 48 hours at maintaining 1,650 to 2,000 degrees, you'll push off the carbon dioxide content in the stone. And in doing that, when you, after the stone has cooled, and then it weighs 44% lighter than it did when it went in the kiln, but it's cool, when you reintroduce water to it, it will violently take that water in in what's called slaking, like slake your thirst. It'll draw the water in so violently, it'll boil the water it sits in within uh, a 10-minute period. However, the, a little-known fact is that if you look at that same uh, mortar now that's been made with that lime putty, and sand had been added to this this putty that has had the water reintroduced uh, to the limestone, you can go in the future 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, and the lime is always slowly converting back into a limestone again through carbonation. It's drawing, it violently draws carbon dioxide out of the uh, slaking bath at first. And it's a young buck at that time. But five years later, 10 years later, 50 years later, it is still trying to convert back into a limestone and will always draw carbon dioxide out of the air so that that's the symbiotic relationship again with nature. When all these nor'easters and wind and water blow on buildings, they're delivering carbon dioxide, and the lime mortar joints are hydrophilic. So these walls that get saturated, they actually give up their water to, towards the attracting high, uh, lime mortar, which then says, "Can we have that carbon dioxide from you?" Because we're converting, still converting back into a stone, and then it releases the the rest of the vapor out to the atmosphere. So this dynamic that's been going on, which material scientists have come to understand, is is something that has preserved historic fabric because no longer does the the soft sandstones and bricks that had they had the wetting and drying cycles go through their faces, would have exfoliated and been damaged. Now the um, historic uh, bricks and stones give up their moisture to the hydrophilic and attracting uh, lime mortar. When the Romans, who are famous as architects and and builders, um, used lime and they burned lime at this uh, time-honored temperature to maintain the reactivity of the lime between 1,650 and 2,000 degrees, it had the ability to convert back into a limestone. However, today's modern production dead burns lime in many cases that overcooks it. And when you say to the the lime uh, that you can get at any hardware store available in the country today, and say, well, I'm going to add water and sand to you. I'd like you to convert back into a limestone and become as hard as hopefully you were at one time as a stone. That inert dust can can, can only in, in, in be used for adding plasticity and flowability to a cement mortar or controlling the, the setting time of a cement mortar. When the, the majority of the available uh, Hydrated dolomitic uh, type S hydrated lime in the United States has just sand and water added to it as a standalone binder, and has to to, to uh, now uh, become as significant and and durable as the historic mortars. It doesn't have the ability to do that because of the burning temperature. So the problem, although there's only two kinds of lime in the world, it always has been the way the lime is cooked has been changed in that it's being uh, sped up for the process of production it's because the key elements that's only asked to do today is that plasticity and control the setting time of a cementitious mortar so we really have we personally have, have not have any success with using a type S hydrated lime and adding sand and water, and then putting it into service as an exterior above-grade mortar in freeze-thaw, extreme freeze-thaw cycles, like the northeast mid-Atlantic states where I'm from. The, you know, the limes to reproduce historic mortar, when we work at uh, some some local building, someone might say, uh, are you going to, uh, you know, go build a kiln and find local lime and, and reproduce every element as it really originally was? Well, the cost becomes a problem. So, um... We import the naturally occurring hydraulic lime, which is pure high calcium and the evenly dispersed silica, so that we know when we add certain percentages of sand, we're going to get a final result that is going to have a known value for you know, liquid and vapor permeability, PSI strength. So it's was, it was true that in the United States and in, uh, in Pennsylvania, you, maybe these historic structures were not built with French hydraulic lime. But it's a suitable replacement that, uh, pound for pound, cost-wise, is uh, reasonable. And we are putting in an in-kind replacement that will do no harm.
1: Do you see lime being used just in historic applications, or are there new applications for lime now?
0: Oh, we're, we're selling, you know, we have a 100,000-bag order for a, a tropical uh, uh, resort that uh, is... Uh, we're creating a, a lime for a green build uh, because of, uh, as I mentioned, the the uh, the lime, the mortars that we've used for historic restoration. Our intent was only to use them to do an in-kind replacement, like to like. No, uh, you know, instituting uh, no material that was going to cause an uh, an associated damage to historic fabric surrounding the stone or brick, you know, like the window frame or something expanding and damaging, um, you know, because of what we used. Uh, however, uh, as I mentioned about people from the cemetery, um, uh, conservators and fine arts finishing people come along, uh, we've also found that, you know, it really meets the uh, the criteria for uh, gold and platinum lead credits because when you're trying to, Lower the embodied energy altogether of the building of what was been used by re- reclaiming and recycling, uh, you know, existing post consumer material, and uh, getting you know all sorts of uh, energy advantages and improving indoor air quality. They find that the the line, just to begin with, because there's 7,500 years of building history proving that it works, where modern cements although introduced in the 1870s in the United States, uh, in my opinion, did not fully take hold until after World War II. So the window of time where cement absolutely dominated for all veneer mortars and building and stucco and everything came from, like, 1945 till now, so a short window of time. But the embodied energy to create a pound of Portland cement, which is the binder for modern stuccos and brick-laying mortar and stone mortar, is incredibly high. Uh, matter of fact, I believe there's uh, the efficiency is very low because there's more waste than there is usable product.
1: Now, lime mortar does have to be reapplied occasionally because it does work with the environment. Uh, how often does that have to be done?
0: Well, there's many historic structures that are in the United States that have uh, are only just receiving their first repointing. So, uh, in Philadelphia, region, this is the area where I'm from. Um, we'll see a historic building that um, uh, you know maybe was uh, repointed in the name of preservation and maybe under the guidance of some uh, government agencies and done only in the 1980s. And yet, it has to be re-repointed, and it had a typo or a high lime content mortar with a little Portland cement added. But yet the 200-year-old building, say, in this region, that's down the street from the one fixed in the name of preservation, um, it will find that sometimes these buildings um, are actually in better repair. What my uh, goal was originally to import lime from France and do the things that we were doing was kind of pursuing excellence and saying, you know, if there is the concept of getting a 100-year fix because we see that these buildings are 100 and 200 years old and no one's one's repointing them. They didn't have the budget to fix it, and it's in better shape than the one they did have the budget to fix. Maybe we should try to mirror the properties of the original material. And so I would say that if a uh, LIME application is done appropriately, there is no reason, just like when you see in Europe uh, old... Uh, plaster over stone, brick and stone buildings or pointed buildings and no one is touching them for 100 years, there is no reason why you won't get a 100-year life cycle if if the project is
1: done correctly. Is using lime mortars and uh, uh, repointing something that everyday people can do? Or is it just something that's for the experts?
0: It's, It's all dependent upon the skill level of the individual. So we've met homeowners who do better work than some masons that we know and then we know um, you know uh, young masons that that are again are just their, their skill level just comes right out. so in when it comes uh, down to just what pointing is you know it's not rocket science it's just sand and' it's, it's binder and aggregate it's sand and lime and then it's just placing that between bricks and stones. But as, as you know and, and many who have observed historic buildings throughout the country, they'll see blaring examples of bright white mortar that did not match the texture, the tooling, the color of the surrounding area. And you got to wonder what were they thinking when they, when they did that pointing job or built that wall like that. And, and to this day, I still don't know what they're thinking, but it's everywhere. So I think it boils down to not that it's so hard to do, but is someone willing to take the time and and care for the project? So, that being said, some of our best customers, the ones who we love to, to, to work with, who are just savvy homeowners, have done their own research. They concluded what they want, how to do it. They'll take a class, and then they will take the time to just if they're going to do a, if, if they're going to point the whole home, they'll they'll commit themselves to I'm going to do maybe even a, only one square foot, but I'm going to do it right.
1: Now, tell me about Ian Cram.
0: Ian Cram, yeah, he's a great man, 83-year-old um, Scottish stonemason, lives in Bangor, Pennsylvania, it's about an hour and a half north of here where I live in Quakertown. And uh, Ian, he his family has been steeped in stonemasonry since 1750 uh, in Edinburgh in Scotland. And along the way, just with his... I think the common denominator amongst craftsmen and artisans is his love for the trade um, had caused him to assemble a book back in 92, I believe. It was called The Art of the Stonemason. And what made it very popular was, you know, you could see the love he had for the trade and just carefully sketching out details uh, describing, you know, how to cut a stone or how to build a stone arch or... How to, you know, name, naming parts of a wall, and and all these things were very popular with masons because, again, it was a throwback to how masonry uh, had historically been done, and those details again that that uh, is a common denominator that's going to make uh, the outcome of any project become excellent and last for that hundred-year fix. And so uh, he he, ha- he uh, uh, began to develop a. F- Following of, of people in the masonry stonemasons, and uh, I, being one of them, you know, bought his book years ago, and and then uh, of course he's so local, I uh, touched base with him about some things and became friends with him. Um, next thing you know, uh, he uh, had to get all together all the information for his second book, which is the Stonemason's Gospel according to Ian Cram. But as we drove along one day. I was taking some projects we were building. Uh, he said, you know, I can't finish my second book and it's all your fault. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, in all the conversations we have regarding the line, you know, you really got a better handle on the technical aspects and how to explain it than I do. And I want to put that in this book. So he asked me to edit and read through his book and understand, you know, what, what he's writing, then put some information that's going to clarify a uh, line. And, uh, so I, uh, helped him produce this second book, um, with my c- computer science, uh, major, uh, son who's in college, uh, to produce the book online, you know, with, uh, uh, over the internet. And then we, uh, produced a few hundred copies. And, and we have them now actually uh, on our website uh, for sale, and that's the Stonemason's Gospel according to Ian Cram.
1: So you kind of see it as um, part of your job, your responsibility, to pass the knowledge along, to make sure that people understand not just why it's important, but what the history of lime mortars is.
0: Yes, very much so. I I think that there was a time when uh, Masons would... uh, you of course, hide the trade secrets. Uh, they had their mason mark, and they would mark the the stones that they produced and shaped and and uh, dressed, and uh, they got paid piecemeal that way. And some of the ancient trade secrets that are that sort of trail off into the masonic tradition of the the non operating masons in today's masonry, as we know, all are. Buildings are accelerating in uh, degradation as, and there's buildings getting older and older, and fewer and fewer people are going into the trade. So it's been my position anymore to say, "Hey, no time for trade secrets." Uh, t- today, I find that if anybody wants to know a trade secret, we're glad to share it because it just doesn't seem like uh, anything that rep- resembles close to actually doing physical hard work uh, is, uh, is getting much a, a of an audience of, of young people wanting to get into it. However, those who do get into it find it incredibly rewarding and then ask themselves, what was I thinking? I was going to go to college and I was going to be stuck in a cubicle somewhere. So I, I'm very much in favor of disseminating knowledge, giving it away, but I see a lot of exploitation of historic resources. Uh, for the sake of personal gain by keeping the patient sick and not getting in there and putting in a repair that would give a long service life and so I'm totally opposed to that and I want to blow the blinders off of that thing and I want to shed as much light on these subjects so that we can move on with the good and excellent conservation of our nation's historic resources
1: Excellent. Andy, thanks so much for being on the podcast
0: i glad you could include me and uh,
1: hope that it was informative. That was Chef Guen
0: interviewing Andy DeGrucci. You can find a full transcript of the interview and related links at the NCPTT website. That's ncptt.nps.gov. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.